You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are with us wherever you're tuning in from. This morning, would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings chapter 5. 1 Kings chapter 5. We're going to be looking at three chapters this morning, all looking at the temple. The temple. So uh, while you're doing that, I want to remind you that at the end of our service, really immediately following the sermon, we're going to transition into our time of communion. It's such a big part of how we do church at Whitefield. It's so important to us because what it does, it reminds us, it recenters us on the gospel every time. It shapes our hearts to appreciate what Jesus has done for us. And so I'd encourage you, maybe right now or during the sermon at some point, now's a good time to go and get those elements, whether you got some from the church building here and pick those up here, or whether you've prepared something at home, be prepared. We're going to take communion at the end of our message today. So we recently began a new series here at Whitefields called Desiring the Kingdom, and this is our study of First and Second Kings. Now, you might be asking the question, why are we studying First and Second Kings? I mean, these are books that tell the story of the history of Israel, but what does that have to do with us today here in Colorado in the 21st century? You know, what does that have to do with coronavirus right now? I mean, why are we studying these books in particular? And that's a good question. There's an even better answer. The reason we are studying these books is because we believe that the whole Bible is inspired by God and is profitable for us to grow into the people he wants us to be. And here's the other thing we believe about the Bible. The Bible is not just a collection of random stories which give us various insights into God. The Bible is something much better than that. The Bible is one unified story which is all about Jesus. One unified story which is all about Jesus. It is the story of how God has acted and is acting in history in order to redeem us and to redeem the world from the curse of sin and death. And so as we study First and Second Kings, we're doing so intentionally with an eye towards how these books point us to the eternal king and his eternal kingdom, Jesus Christ, our savior, and the kingdom that is to come. So if you'd please read along with me, our passage that we're going to read is 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, and then verses 11 through 14. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Verse 11, now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that as we study your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would bless us. Lord, we ask that you would give us insight, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see glorious things in your word. Lord, help us to be inspired, but we also ask, Lord, that in areas of our lives where we need it, that you would challenge us, that you would speak into areas of our lives that need to be addressed, and Lord, that you would teach us, encourage us, and shape and direct the direction of our lives, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself doing something, but you can't remember why you started doing that thing in the first place? Some of you are like, yes, that happens every time I go into the kitchen. I get the kitchen, and then I'm like, why did I come here in the first place? I can't remember. Now, as people, we can have that habit sometimes in, in more significant areas of our lives as well. We can get into habits and routines to the point where we can actually forget the reason and the purpose behind why we are doing those things in the first place. I found a good example of this in a story which was told by a pastor named Chuck Swindoll. It's a true story. He tells the story of a time when he visited a restaurant called the Church of God Grill. He says, uh, here's what he says. He says, when I lived in Atlanta several years ago, I noticed in the yellow pages, which for anyone my age or younger is what we used to call the internet before the internet existed. So the yellow pages, and he said, in the listing of restaurants, there was an entry for a place called the Church of God Grill. Now the peculiar name aroused my curiosity, so I dialed the number and a man answered with a cheery, hello, Church of God Grill. I asked, how did this restaurant get such an unusual name? And he told me, well, it originally started out as a church, and the church needed to make ends meet. So we started selling chicken dinners after church on Sundays to help pay the bills. Well, people really liked the chicken, and we did such a good business that we actually had to cut back on some of our Bible studies, and eventually we cut back on Sunday services as well because we had to accommodate all the orders that were coming in. And after a while, we just shut down the church, but we kept serving the chicken dinners, and we decided to keep our name. That's why we're called Church of God Grill. It's a perfect example of how you can get busy doing things and forget the purpose, the reason behind why you're doing those things in the first place. And that is a great example of what happened with the Jewish temple that was built in Jerusalem by King Solomon. Here in 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7, we read about the construction of the temple by Solomon. But if you read through the rest of the Bible, what you'll find is that over time, the people of Israel got so busy doing things in the temple that they lost sight of the purpose of the temple. In fact, by the time of Jesus, for sure, the people of Israel were more infatuated with and focused on the temple of God than they were with the God of the temple. Here in 1 Kings, we read about the building of the temple. It's important for us to notice here as we look at it and we see it built, we need to see the purpose for which the temple was built. And here's what we're going to see. And this is a sentence. You can write it down. You can take note of it. You can memorize it. Here's what I want you to know. The temple was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven and a picture of who we become in Christ. The title of today's message is A Temple for the Living God. And the way we're going to look at this passage is we're going to take that sentence I just said, and we're going to look at all three points in that sentence. Those will be our three points for our sermon. We're going to break it into three parts. So the temple was, first of all, a place for people. It was a place for people to do what? To get a glimpse of heaven. And it was also a picture of who we become in Christ. So the first one of those, the temple was a place for people. First Kings 5 verse 1 tells us this. It tells us about, it kind of takes us back in time, in the way back machine. It takes us back to the early days of Solomon's reign as king of Israel. And it tells us that at that time, a king named Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, sent a delegation from Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon, just to the north of Israel. He sent a delegation from Lebanon to congratulate Solomon on being 
crowned as king. And so in verse 2 of chapter 5, Solomon sees this delegation and he sends word with the delegation to speak to their king. And he says, hey, could you give this message to your king? And we read that message starting in verse 2. Here's what he says. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build a th- the house for my name. Now therefore, command the cedars of Lebanon to be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Okay, the idea to build a temple was birthed or began in the heart and mind of King David, Solomon's father. He wanted to build a temple to replace the tabernacle. For 500 years, the tabernacle had been Israel's place of worship. It was a place where they made sacrifices. It was a place where they came at special times of year to honor the Lord and worship him. And what the tabernacle was, it was a portable church. It was literally a tent. Now, it was an elaborate tent. It was a beautiful tent. It was a sturdy tent. It had to be. It held up through their wanderings through the desert, all the way from Mount Sinai through the desert into the land of Canaan and the conquest of Canaan. And we're told that that was almost 500 years there in chapter 6, verse 1. It's been 500 years now that they've been worshiping in the tabernacle, but now they're settled in the land. And the fact is, no matter how good you take care of your tent, after 500 years, your tent's going to be pretty worn out. And so David has this idea. He's going to replace the tabernacle with a temple, which would function the same way the tabernacle did. It would be built to the same um, measurements and everything, but it would be a permanent structure now that they are permanently settled in the land. And it would have the same function as the tabernacle. It would be a place of worship, but it would also be a central point for the nation there in Jerusalem. Great idea, right? There's only one problem. The problem is that David was a wartime leader, a wartime leader. And that's what God tells him. You're a man of war. You can't build the temple. This is found back, by the way, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, for those of you who want to go and check that out. So not only was David disqualified from building a temple because he was a man who had blood on his hands as a man of war, but there was also a very important logistical issue. And the logistical issue is simply this, that this was a project which required all hands on deck for several years. What we see here in chapter 5 is that not even in Israel were there enough workers. They had to go and hire workers from Tyre, which is Lebanon in the north. And so it doesn't make any sense to get into a big project like this that requires your entire labor force when your nation is at war, or at least facing the threat of war from outside forces. And so God had told David, no, David, not you, but one of your sons will be the one to build this temple. So here we are, 1 Kings chapter 5. Solomon is now king of Israel. The nation is experiencing a time of peace. They're no longer at war, and so now it's time to build the temple. And we're told, by the way, in 1 Chronicles, which is an interesting read. If you read 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, along with 1 and 2 Kings, you get some contributing kind of complementary information. So we see in 1 Chronicles that David had drawn up the plans, and he had created most of the elements to be used in the temple. 
and he handed those over to Solomon. So here we are, 1 Kings chapter 5. Solomon is now king, and he starts to make arrangements to build the temple and carry out these plans. Here in chapter 5, what we see is that he makes an agreement with the king of Tyre to buy cedar wood from Lebanon. If you look at the flag of Lebanon to this day, it has a cedar tree on it. You know, you often think of the Middle East as being a really deserty place, but the country of Lebanon is like 0% desert. It's all big forests, and most famously, the cedars of Lebanon. And so they, they say, hey, we want the best wood from that place, and we want the best workmen to work on it. So they hire these laborers and buy this wood. Now, there's something important I want you to notice as we study through this. Remember, our first point here is this. The temple was a place for people. Look at how Solomon refers to the temple in verse 5. He says, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Notice, he doesn't say a house for God. He says a house for the name of God. Now, that's an important difference because it shows us that Solomon understands that this building is not going to confine God. You know, many of the pagan religions at that time believed that their gods literally lived in their temples. But no, 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 this is different. God wants us to understand he's a free-range God. He's not confined to buildings in that way. So this is not going to be the sole dwelling place and location of God's dwelling. Rather, this will be a memorial to God. It will be a memorial to the name of God, a place dedicated to the worship of God where people will come to honor God and worship him. See, God's promise that we read just a minute ago as we began our time here in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 13, God's promise was this. He says in verse 13 that he will dwell among the people of Israel. So God was careful to point out that he will not dwell in the temple in the same way that pagan gods were thought to live in their temples, but he will dwell among the people. That's where his dwelling place is found. It's interesting because when you compare this with Paul the Apostle, in Acts chapter 17, we read about how Paul the Apostle traveled around the world preaching the gospel, planting churches on his missionary journeys. Well, at one point, he comes to the city of Athens. And there in Athens, which of course is the hub, the center of Greek pagan religion and philosophy, Paul, when he gets the chance to talk to the people of that city about Jesus, he immediately wants to point out the difference between their gods and his God. And here's what he says in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." See, the temple that Solomon was building for God, this wasn't a special place for God to dwell. Rather, this was a special place for humans to encounter God. See, that's the first thing we understand about the temple. The temple was a place for God, or uh, sorry, a place for people. God didn't need the temple. People needed the temple. And so Paul goes on there in Acts 17 to explain to the people of Athens who this God is and, and what, why he has created them. He says this, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands, but rather it is in him that we live and move and have our being. And then Paul tells him this, this God is the one who created you and he is the one who sustains your life every moment and his purpose in creating you. And he says this, the times and the seasons and the 
of the boundaries of your habitation. In other words, the situations, the circumstances of your life. Why are you here where you are right now? Why were you born into the family you were born into in this time in history? Why? He tells us, because he wants you to seek him and find him. Seek him and find him. Again, have you wondered, of all the places in the world where you could have been born, of all the periods in history that you could have been born into, why were you born in the place and the time that you were? The reason it tells us here in Acts 17 in the Bible is this. The purpose of why God created you and placed you in the exact circumstances that he did is this reason, so that you would seek him and find him. Paul says there in Acts 17 to the people of Athens, God is not actually far away from you. He is right there with you, wherever you are. He is right there, right now. He is not a far away, distant God. And all you have to do to enter into relationship with him, to experience communion with him, is to humbly acknowledge him and to receive his grace by faith. Because it says there in Acts 17 that there is a day coming when we will all stand before God. We will all stand before God, and our actions here on earth will be judged by God. But God has made a way for us to be forgiven, saved, redeemed, justified through the one who he has appointed, is what Paul calls him. And he says, this one he has appointed, Jesus Christ, whom he confirmed by raising him up from the dead. That is the good news of the gospel. So the temple wasn't just a a house for God. Rather, it, it wasn't a house for God at all in the sense that God's presence was limited to that place or that it was only found in that location. And yet, God's presence was there in a special way. We're going to see that a lot next week in chapter 8 when we look at the way that the glory of God filled the temple. And we're going to talk about what that means for us, by the way. So make sure you tune in for that. But God didn't need that building for himself. The building, rather, was a tool for the people to grow in relationship with God. It was a tool for the people to grow in relationship with God. Notice what God says to Solomon in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, as we read it. It says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house you're building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word, which I spoke to your father, David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and not forsake my people Israel. Notice, God doesn't even mention the building, does he? He doesn't mention the building. God talks to Solomon about Solomon's heart and Solomon's life. God talks about how he wants Solomon to walk with him and to know him and to give his life to him. In other words, the Lord is saying, Solomon, I'm not as concerned about building this building as I am concerned about building you. See, if this building serves that purpose of building you and helping you in relationship with me, then it has succeeded in its purpose. But as soon as it doesn't serve that purpose, I don't need the building. And the same thing is true for church buildings, guys. You know, a a church building can never become the focus of a church. And I say that as a church who has just moved into a building. We've wanted this for a long time, and we're here. But I'll tell you this, a building is only useful 
in so much as it facilitates people growing in the knowledge of God and being equipped in relationship with God, being sent out to do the work of God, only if it's a tool for ministry and helping people have fellowship with God and with other believers. Again, we just recently moved into this building after years of doing church in a gym. If there's anybody who knows that it's not about the building, it should be us, right? And it's so important that we never lose that focus. A building is a tool. And that's it. It's like the family car. That's what I've been telling you guys these last several weeks. The family car is not the point of the family. You don't get a family so that you can buy a car. That would be ridiculous. No, the the family car is a tool that a family uses to meet the needs of the family. And as your family grows, you might need to upgrade from a coupe to a minivan and then to that big nine-passenger van as well, right, if you get a little crazy with it so you can fit in some more kids. Because what you don't want to do is have to choose which kids you're going to leave behind because they don't fit in the car, right? So at some point, you got to upgrade to the van. That's what this building is. But the family car is only helpful as long as it helps you get where you need to go. If it takes you somewhere, then it's helpful. But if the family car, right, if the whole purpose of your family is taking care of the family car rather than being a tool that your family can use to help you as a family, then you've lost the purpose and you've missed the point. So the temple was that way as well. The temple was important, See, that's the thing I want you to understand. We can't get to the other point, the other extreme here, where we say the temple didn't matter, church doesn't matter, buildings don't matter. The temple was important. Yes, God is everywhere, but the temple mattered. It was important as a place for the people. Sometimes I hear people say things like this, right? They'll say, hey, well, if God's everywhere, then why go to church? I go fishing. That's my church. Fishing by the lake. That's my church. When I'm hiking, that's where I experience God. That's my church. Hey, listen, I'm telling you this as somebody who loves the outdoors. I spend as much time in the mountains as I possibly can, but that is no replacement, nor can it ever be a replacement for worshiping and studying together as a church community. Now, on the one hand, God made sure the people understood that he is not limited to the temple. And yet, remember this, God required the people to come to the temple over and over and over throughout the year, no matter how far away they lived or had to travel to get there. They had to come there to make offerings and to make sacrifices. They had to come there to hear the law read aloud. They had to come there for feasts and festivals. But the purpose of all of those activities was always and only to facilitate relationship with God. It was to teach the people. It was to shape their hearts so that they would understand who God was and who they were in relation to him and what it meant and what it required for them to be in relationship with him. And the same is true of the church. So God wasn't limited to the temple, but the temple was a place for people to grow in relationship with God. So that brings us to our second point. We're walking through this sentence. Remember, the temple was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven. That's the other thing it was. It was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven. At the end of chapter 5, and then getting into chapter 6, we see the actual construction of the temple. And then in chapter 7, we see some of the items that were created Um, buildings that were built around the temple and some items that were created for use in the temple. Now, the temple followed the same basic design as the tabernacle with a few exceptions, and we see those exceptions in chapter 6. For example, Solomon added on to the plans for the tabernacle by putting a vestibule or an entryway on the front of the temple. He also added a three-storied colonnade 
portico that went around the temple itself. But the temple itself was not a particularly large building. You know, you think about our church building right now, 23,000 square feet. The temple, 2,700 square feet. It was 90 feet long. It was 30 feet wide. And it was 45 feet high. So it was, it was much taller than it was wide. And it was divided into two rooms. And those two rooms were divided by a thick curtain that was about three to three and a half inches thick, sometimes called the veil. And those two rooms were called the holy place and the most holy place. Sometimes it's also called the holy of holies. So that first place, the holy place, in that room, there were a few items. One of the items was a lampstand. There were actually several lampstands, and Solomon added some lampstands. There was no natural light. There were no windows in the temple, and that's for a reason. It represents the fact that God is light, and he is a light that exists outside of the natural bodies of light that we have in the world. Okay, there was also an altar of incense that burned day and night, and that altar of incense represented the prayers of the people of God ascending to God as a sweet-smelling aroma. It reminds us. Again, the temple is a picture of heaven, a glimpse into heaven. Everything represented something about heaven. So it tells us that in heaven, God takes joy. He takes pleasure in our prayers as they arise to him. There was also a table inside that first room, the holy place. It was called the table of showbread. And every day, the priests would enter in and they would swap out the bread. In some cases, they would even eat that bread. Actually, in most cases, they would eat the bread. Now, what that bread spoke of is it spoke of fellowship, spoke of fellowship with God. Wherever you see times of, you know, Psalm 23, it talks about how God seats us at his table. It's this idea of fellowship with God because oftentimes fellowship takes place around food and around breaking of bread. You know, when we take communion, like today at the end of our service, it speaks of the fact that we have fellowship with God because of what Jesus did for us, because his body was broken on the cross for us. Communion also points us forward to heaven where we, we will be brought to the great wedding feast where we will sit at the table of the king and dine with him in fellowship forever. Now here's what's interesting. Only the priests were allowed to enter into the temple and they could only enter into the holy place, that first room in the temple. And they would enter in every day to make sure the incense was burning, to change out the bread and to make sure the lamps were lit. But that second room in the temple, the holy place, the most holy place, or the the holy of holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was located. The Ark of the Covenant, remember? Indiana Jones, that's what he was trying to find. The Ark of the Covenant was a box covered in gold, and it was very ornate. Inside this box were held the Ten Commandments. And on the lid of that box were two golden angels. And the wings of these angels met at one point over the top of the box. And this place, was, this lid had a name. It was called the mercy seat, the mercy seat. And what it represented was the throne of God. It was an image that meant or represented the throne of God on earth. And on one day a year, called Yom Kippur, which means the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice would be made for the sins of the entire nation. And one priest, chosen by lot, would be allowed to enter in through the curtain from the holy place into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice for atonement for the entire nation 
onto the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, to atone for the sins of the people. But he would have to do that once every year. And that sacrifice had to be repeated every single year. Now, most people, understand this, most people, if you were a regular Jewish person, you would never be able to enter into the temple, not even into the first room. Only the priests were allowed to enter in, and only one priest on one special day would be allowed to enter into the most holy place, and most priests never got that opportunity in their lives. Outside of the temple, there were two courts. There was a large outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. If you were not a Jew, that's as close as you would ever get. If you were a Jew, you could enter into the inner court, which was uh, called that. It was called the inner courtyard. It's mentioned here in 1 Kings 6, verse 36. It says that Solomon built the walls of it out of stone and then covered them in cedar. And it was there in the inner courtyard that the actual sacrifices took place. That's where there was a a big bronze altar, which was huge. It was big enough to put big animals like bulls onto this altar. They would build a fire underneath it, and there was a big bronze altar. Along with the altar, there was next to it a big bronze wash basin for ritual cleansing. Now, we read here in chapter 7 that Solomon expanded this. He made it bigger than it had been in the tabernacle and more ornate. But again, it spoke of ritual cleansing, and it was used for that purpose. We're told that it took a a total of seven years to build the temple. Remember, that's all hands on deck. One of the things you'll notice in the building of the temple is that they used the absolute best material from the best craftsmen. No uh, cost is spared here. At the end of chapter 5, I find something interesting. We read about the cutting of the stones for the foundation of the temple. If you go to Jerusalem today, one of, the, one of the absolute best things you can do while you're in the city is two different places, but they're all about the foundation of the temple. You can go into Zechariah's tunnels, and that is the place where they cut the stones for the, the actual temple. You can go into the quarry. It's actually underneath the city of Jerusalem. And you can see, uh, and you go in the other tunnels, which are the tunnels that go to see the actual foundation of the temple, which you can see to this day, huge stones. Imagine stones the size of an RV or a motorhome. Huge stones, and they're cut to the exact specifications so much that you can barely put a piece of paper between the two stones, and there's no mortar used at all to glue them together. Now, here's what we read uh, here in 1 Kings chapter 5. These stones were cut into size at the quarry so that no sound of a chisel or hammer would be heard on the Temple Mount when they were being assembled. All the work was done ahead of time in the quarry. And what's so interesting, though, is this, that they used these best materials to build the foundation. See, the, the problem with that, though, is, of course, that no one ever sees the foundation. Now, nowadays we do because we've built tunnels down to look at them. But in general, nobody sees the foundation of a building. And so it's not usually that important that a foundation be good looking or be of the most uh, precious stones or materials. But I think this speaks of God's work in our lives. Many times, our focus is so much on the outer, what other people see, on the appearance And I see that God's work is so different than that. Look at God's work. He sees below the surface, and he wants those foundational parts of our lives, the parts that nobody sees except for him. He wants those things to be beautiful and strong. He puts a lot of focus on those things. He wants them to have integrity, the parts that nobody sees except for him. As you read through these chapters, again, one thing you'll notice 
is that they use the very best materials. And they use a lot of gold. It would have been very expensive. And they, use the, they do the finest work they could possibly do. In other words, they cared a lot about excellence. And we, as the people of God, we should care a lot about excellence. This is a principle that we see throughout the Bible, particularly in regard to what we give to God. And the principle is this, that we are called to give to God our first and our best. Our first and our best, not our leftovers and the rest, right? Because some of us, that's our tendency, right? We will say, okay, well, I'll keep the first and the best. And if I have anything left over, you know, then I might, maybe I'll give that to God too, you know, if, if I don't forget. Now, now, why? Does God need, you know, fancy wood? Does God need gold? No. But you know who needs it? You do. You need it. You need to give God your first and your best. You know why? Because it trains your heart. It trains your heart. It shapes you as a person when you take that action of giving God your first and your best. One of my mentors always used to put it this way. He would say, when God tells us to give, a, give him our first and our best, that is not God's way of raising money. That is God's way of raising kids. And guess who those kids are? You and me, right? We are his kids. God's raising us. He's shaping our hearts and shaping our minds. He wants to build in us certain characteristics and values. He wants to shape the way that we think about the purpose of our lives and how we relate to the material world around us. You know what happens when you get your paycheck and you give your first and your best to God or to help others? What happens is that it shapes what you do for the rest of the month, literally. It means, well, now I can't do certain things because I did that. And let me tell you what, that's a good thing. Because instantly, guess what? Your heart is more invested in the work of God than it would have been otherwise. You know why? Because like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Material things, money, possessions. You know what they do? They think about it like an eagle that has talons. Have you ever seen the talons of an eagle? You know, it's money and material possessions, they have this tendency to get their talons, to get their claws into your heart, to get a grip on your heart and get their talons into your heart. But you know what happens when you are generous, when you give away some of what you have to others or for the work of God, you are making a conscious choice that says, I will not let material things sink their claws into my heart. I will remove those claws from my heart because I don't want to be a slave to my possessions. I don't want to be a slave to this material world. Rather, I will use those things for a purpose greater than and other than myself. I will use those things to bless others and to further the work of God and his kingdom in this world because I know that God has a higher calling on my life, a bigger purpose than just my own personal comfort. I'll tell you what, as you do that, as you give your first and your best to bless others and to further the work of God, that will shape you. That will shape you. It's so important and necessary in the world that we live in in particular you know, it, it prevents you when you do that. It prevents you from becoming a slave to material possessions. And it keeps your heart and your mind focused on your mission and your purpose and your calling in life from God. Now, conversely, let's just think about that. When you what does it train your mind and your heart to do when you reserve the first and the best for yourself? 
And if there's anything left over, then maybe you, you give that to others and to God. Well, that mentality, that practice, you know what it does? It feeds into our already self-obsessed consumer mentality, which is not only prevalent in the culture that we live in today, it is the natural inclination of the human heart to think about ourselves first and others second. Now, there are so many voices in our culture today that would tell you this. They would say, the key to happiness is to look out for yourself first. Look out for number one. That's the key to happiness. Take care of yourself first. But if we look at Jesus, we see something different, don't we? We see something different. We see a person who lived first and foremost his entire life to serve God and to to serve others. And as a result, he was absolutely miserable, wasn't he? No, no, he wasn't. He wasn't. You know what? One of my favorite verses about Jesus in the Bible, Hebrews chapter one, verse nine, it says that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And as a result, God anointed him with the oil of gladness or the oil of happiness above all his companions. You know what that means? That Jesus was the happiest person on the block. He was the happiest person who ever lived. And guys, this is the great paradox. This is the great irony of happiness. The key to happiness is giving, not receiving. The key to happiness is serving rather than needing others to serve you. It is through giving that you find significance and joy in life. And the temple was meant to be a glimpse of heaven. But I want you to notice this as we move on to our next point. Everything in the temple communicated one thing, and that one thing was separation. It communicated separation. You cannot come beyond this point unless you meet these criteria. You cannot come beyond the next point. There were layers of it until finally there was the ultimate layer, that curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And what it communicated is this. In order to have a relationship with God, in order for you to have communion with God, There are certain things that need to be done in order to overcome these barriers of separation that exist because of your imperfections and impurities, because of your shortcomings in front of a holy God. There are sacrifices that need to be made, but even those sacrifices aren't enough to fix the problem. They just temporarily cover over it. There's washing that needs to be done, but again, that has to be repeated over and over again, and no amount of scrubbing can ever remove once and for all the uncleanness that you have before God. You see, the temple was a glimpse of heaven, but what it communicated was the doors closed. And that's why the temple was not only a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven, but ultimately the temple served as a foreshadowing of something greater which was to come. And that brings us to our final point. The temple was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven and a picture of who we become in Christ. In the book of Hebrews chapter nine, it tells us that when Jesus died, here's what happened in the heavenly realm. Jesus, the ultimate priest, entered into the actual throne room of God And he brought the blood of the ultimate sacrifice. You see, everything that happened in the temple was just a picture, a foreshadowing, a teaser, if you will, of the one great event, the greatest event in all of history, when Jesus, the true priest, the perfect sacrifice, enters into the throne room and presents the blood of himself the only perfect offering without sin or blemish, not the blood of goats or bulls, 
but the blood of the one and only sinless son of God who died in your place in order to make atonement for your sins once and for all. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The cleansing to end all cleansings. The sacrifice that makes us clean. The sacrifice that tears down the walls of separation. That opens the door that was formerly closed between a holy God and sinful people so that we can enter into fellowship with him forever and be seated at his table. The temple was a picture, a foreshadowing of the great event that was going to take place and which did take place in God's heavenly throne room when Jesus atoned for our sins in order to remove those walls of separation between us and God. And that is why, once the temple had served its purpose of foreshadowing this great event, the building of the temple was no longer needed. That's why when Jesus was speaking to the woman in Samaria in John chapter 4, you might remember the story he told her. She was asking, where's the right place to worship God, this building or that building? And he told her, I tell you the truth, the day is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will not worship him in temples made by human hands, but they will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus told his disciples, do you remember? He says, the day is coming when God is going to allow the temple to be destroyed so that one stone is not left standing on another. And when the disciples heard that, they were confused. They thought, well, if there's no temple, how will we make the sacrifices that are required for fellowship with God? And it was only later on that they understood Jesus was that sacrifice that was required for fellowship with God. The temple was a picture of who we become in Christ. And look at what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul the Apostle writes to them and he says, Because of what Jesus did, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Check this out. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure joined together grows up into a holy temple unto the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In the New Testament, here and elsewhere, we who are believers in Jesus, who've been redeemed and born again, we are called the temple of the living God, both individually and corporately. See, by becoming, when you become a child of God, by embracing the gospel by faith, God places his Holy Spirit inside of you. Just like how in the temple, God was always omnipresent, but he dwelt in that place in a special way. Now that same thing is true of you. God's spirit indwells you in a special way. You are the temple of the living God. If you have given your life to him, he has placed his presence, his spirit inside of you. But that's not all. We're told here in this passage in Ephesians that what the apostle Paul is telling us, we are not just individually temples of the living God, but corporately we are together the temple of the living God. We are living stones. Each of us has our place in this building the structure that God is building. He says we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You know what that is? That's the Bible, the word of God. That's the foundation of our faith. That's the foundation of the church, the revealed will of God in the scriptures. But the cornerstone is Jesus Christ, and it is in him that we grow together into this holy temple. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, we are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it's some sort of support group or club. 
Rather, Christ died for his people, and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. See, God has kept his promise that he made back then, hasn't he? To dwell among his people. But when Paul refers to Jesus as the cornerstone, know this. He's actually quoting from the prophet Isaiah, who referred to the Messiah by this term, the cornerstone. He said, if you trust in him, you will never be put to shame. But here's an interesting fact for you. Do you know what, which verse is the, in the Old Testament is quoted more than any other time in the New Testament? So which Old Testament verse is used the most in the New Testament? Here it is, Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's that talking about? What it's talking about is a story which is not found in the Bible. It's a Jewish tradition. But the story was very widespread. And here's the story. That Remember, like we read in chapter 5, they were quarrying the stones for the temple, for the foundation. As they were doing that, they brought the stones out to be put into place. And there was one stone that was a different size than all the others. It didn't fit in with all the others. And so the builders assumed that that stone was a mistake. And so they cast it out. They threw it. They rolled it down the hill into the Kidron Valley, which, by the way, is where they used to roll the trash of the city. And so the builders, they assume that's a cornerstone, so they reject it. And then later on, they found out that that stone they had cast away was actually the cornerstone of the foundation. Now, that tradition is what is being talked about there in Psalm 118. Interesting story, right? Why does it matter? Here's why. Because in Luke chapter 20, Jesus takes that verse, that most quoted Old Testament verse, uh, and he says this, this, hey, you know that verse? That's actually about me. That's actually about me. I am the cornerstone, the Messiah, the most crucial, the most important one upon which everything stands or falls. And in the same way that during the building of the temple, the builders rejected the cornerstone, in the same way, there are people who will look at me and they will reject me. They will say, you don't fit in with how I want to live my life. But by doing so, They're throwing away the cornerstone, the foundation for their lives and for everything else. And without me, everything will eventually collapse. And Jesus concluded his words there by saying something really interesting. In Luke 20, verse 18, Jesus says this, not only am I the cornerstone which Isaiah spoke of, the the promised Messiah, but every person has a choice. Either you will fall upon me or I will fall upon you. He says it this way, everyone who falls upon me will be broken to pieces, but on whomever I fall, I will scatter them like dust. What does that mean? Here's what it means. Jesus is the cornerstone. Either you will cast yourself upon him as your savior, as the foundation stone, the cornerstone for your life, or he will fall upon you as a judge. To cast yourself upon him, it requires humility, doesn't it? It requires admitting that you need him to be your cornerstone, your foundation, your savior. That requires humility. It means admitting that you can't do it on your own. You can't save yourself, that you need forgiveness. You need him to be your strength and foundation of your life. So if you do that, if you cast yourself upon him out of necessity, you will be broken in humility. But if you refuse to do that, The other option's worse. It means that he will fall upon you in judgment and you will be scattered like dust. I want to leave you with this thought as I end. The temple was a place for people to get a glimpse of heaven 
and a picture of who we become in Christ. How will you respond to what Jesus has done for you? Will you resist him until his judgment eventually falls upon you and scatters you like dust? Or will you cast yourself upon him in brokenness and humility and make him the cornerstone of your life? I encourage you to do that until we one day, face to face, enter into that true home with him forever. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.